you go down this cliff, go left down the cliff, yeah. left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. When a competent observer looks for signs of despotism in a community, he looks beyond fine words and noble phrases. It's society. They work for each other. They pay each other. They buy houses. They get married and make children. They that just sounds like slavery with extra steps. Go into the automobile business and compete with the auto trust. Can I go into the grocery business and compete with the chain stores? Not a chance. Monopoly is the menace of free enterprise. Because it's just a big money-making machine. They're wandering through a maze of inauthentic, fake landscapes, and they can't escape. The message in all this is that the capitalist system in America is unfair and is, in fact, a failure at providing for basic human needs or maintaining continued national growth. I, I can't wait for like the episode of like who wants to be a millionaire where all the contestants like team up and they overpower the hosts and they share the money. Bottom-up horizontal connection is sharing at all levels, not top-down control. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Because as communities go, so goes the nation. Okay, welcome to the Three Left Show. I'm Dan Platt, your host for this two-hour reading and talking and analysis from a radical left-wing perspective. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from what I just said. For the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy, a commons economy, and pretty much organizing collectively discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is uh, of itself and for itself, the meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology, building communities from the ground grassroots up and how to make it work in a larger society with the man, the system, whatever else you imagine. We probably wave the flags of the three lefts, basically just representing that I'm multi-tendency, multi-ideology. But, you know, most people don't what, – what, what, what unites people these days? It's not really – I mean, can, can it be ideology? Can it be our heroes? Um, what kind of ideas? I mean, I've talked to certain older sets. It's, they still have their religion that unites them, set of beliefs and ideas. Or at least the was it the perception that, like, they're all coming out to vote for the same thing or with the same motives – I don't think any data actually backs that up, but um, but it's, it's something that was imagined in certain sectors and certain groups I've been in. But anyway, that's just me rambling. This is an ecology episode. Probably going to try to do more of them. I usually do more during the summer. Can can you guess why? We have extreme weather events. Global warming is definitely happening. Climate chaos, and it's only going to get worse. We have been in a mass six extinction, and certain various environmental problems have actually exasperated over time, you know, accelerated, despite the trimming and greenwashing here and there. So let's discuss first a little bit of the whys of that, kind of more of a structural critique, as I usually do. I usually kind of go towards, well, yes, so I'm going back to an earlier format of mine where I start with the structural critique. And then I go into more individual, sometimes even fluffy stories, and then kind of and link those back to the larger concept. You know, some formats are, we're going to start with, like, inciting events, something that's recognizable, let's say, pull out of Afghanistan. It's been in the making for three years, but for some reason, uh, most uh, people have just noticed. 
but basically deal making that there would be a peaceful transfer of power between the drug lords we were propping up and the Taliban. Neither side is good, but those are the political forces that exist there. Just as here in America, the political forces that exist are Republicans and Democrats. Most people hate them. Most people don't actually identify as them. But when it comes to elections and who's in charge, well, those are the players. So you got to play ball with one of them, right? It's like saying, are you going to side with the drug lords who are foreign uh, educated or the Taliban in their uh, religious ways? Obviously, we want more options than that. And here I am to do some political education along that line. So what am I going to do first? The first one is from a, what should I call it, a think tank? It's called the Great Transition Initiative. Now, this comes from the language that, you know, when faced with climate change, catastrophe, and how if we get more than two degrees of warming, which is, I think, already locked in, but if we get above that, let's say, we can keep moving the goalposts of what we want to accomplish or what is projected to actually destroy human civilization if not humanity altogether, in the long run. Uh, we've been wrong before, but we kind of want to not be chancy about that stuff. But a lot of people are black bill. A lot of people are nihilistic, uh, narcissistic, just like, you know, this is like, what about me? What about my living as standard of living? Anyway, this is, an, a, I'm not going to cover a, they, they had a forum that has a kind of opening, it's like keynote, an opening essay, which is titled Interrogating the Anthropocene Truth and Fallacy. I'm not covering that so much, but I suppose I could summarize it as being kind of the opening for this form of theirs, the Great Transition Initiative. Their subtitle is Toward a Transformative Vision and Praxis. So that language is based on how we need a big transition. We need a transition off of fossil fuels. We need a transition to a sustainable economy, and society. What does that mean? More on that in the next story, but otherwise. First, let's interrogate that we're in a, you know, the, so the scene, if you haven't heard that term before, general idea that we, humanity, affect the planet, that we are in fact shaping the geology of the planet by layering down a layer of plastic on our planet, you know, or, or the, the fact that uh, actually mass pollution what we put in the air settles everywhere. You know, it, it goes everywhere. Like when we burned a lot of leaded gasoline, that lead went everywhere, especially in North America. It made a nice little layer of soot on. And so that's kind of referred to as, you know, us shaping the geography, the geology even of the earth. Pretty arrogant to say, like, we're having a really big effect, but even if it's a minute one, we're, we're changing rivers, we're changing, uh, where the glaciers are doing, you know, we're excelling, we're having an impact on Earth science, or, you know, Earth forces. But there are some issues with this um, concept. So a Jeremy Baskin kind of writes a response, and it's part of the conversation, why you're think tanky stuff. So here's where I start reading. I enjoyed reading Paul Raskin's beautifully written opener and the many thoughtful responses to it. I will limit myself to sharing two thoughts. A starting point is that the Amorphocene is not a fact, it is a paradigm. 
Global warming is a fact. Accelerating rates of species extinction is a fact. Deforestation is a fact. The anamphrocene is not a fact. Not even among geologists, where there is substantial opposition to the terms adoption. So at the very least, and I think the first writer did this as well, he pointed out that this is a social term. This is an activist term. It's not a scientific term. Even though it's, it's using the same, like an anthrocene is like uh, talking about layers of geology. Rather, the anthrocene is a lens, a way of seeing. As of all lenses, we must ask if it helps us see, uh, yeah, if it helps us see and understand the world better if it reveals more than it conceals. I can understand the attraction of the term for those in earth science system sciences, for example, where the limitations of adopting a purely physical view of you know, how things work have become increasingly apparent in recent decades. The recognition that climate change today is largely uh, man-made, or called anthropogenic, uh, and that there is a need to incorporate an anthrosphere, so to speak, when modeling the atmosphere, cryosphere, and hydrosphere, water, water cycle, and their interactions is undoubtedly important, and perhaps the anamphrocene has been helpful. But here we are interested in the usefulness of the concept in helping to understand, as Raskin puts it, who we are, where are we going, and how we must act. In this, I am more skeptical than that of most, parad you know, the adopters of this paradigm. It's most useful. The term is used as shorthand for recognizing the role of humans in the workings of the Earth system and ecological devastation, planetary overshoot, which are features of the world today, and in urging us to think together human activities in the more than human world and understand these as linked systems. But this is not an especially novel insight. Further, this observational aspect of the concept describing the magnitude of human influence is typically attached to a range of explanations as to how the situation came to pass, such as capitalism, industrialization, mass agriculture, human nature. This is just a list of possible explanations that, that people usually give. I go with the first two, if not the first one. And manifold prescriptions, because, I mean, it's hard to argue that what we could industrialize without mass pollution and such. Or you can industrialize without capitalism. Uh, I don't think I've seen it. Uh, certainly Gandhi uh, theorized about it quite a bit. But his policies were never got a chance to be enacted um, to give him a shot. Uh, the range of explanations and prescriptions, even as many are plausible in their own terms, act to empty the larger concept of meaning. At best, we are left with an injunction to think together, together the human and the more than human worlds. At worst, we have in the term two capricious a conceptual umbrella to be useful. It just covers too much. My second thought on Raskin's opener relates to his identification of three options as dead ends. So they go as the hubristic technofix, the voluntary simplicity, and ecological Armageddon. And his call to transcend modernity, not re-engineer it, shrink from it, or succumb to it. As he so elegantly puts it, now for me, Voluntary simplicity sits uncomfortably in that list. I would not dismiss it so quickly, although perhaps the voluntary aspect needs interrogating, nor would I dismiss degrowth, which is I guess what it's supposed to refer to, as wishful thinking, even as I am not naive about the difficulties in making it uh, real or implementing it. 
But voluntary simplicity, I think, in his list is the whole individualistic, let's just kind of adopt paper straws, create less garbage on a household basis, other such like homesteading activities that reduce our personal waste. But we, we were part of a, well, we live in a society and we live an industrial one with many flows. And although there was a bit of a stoppage of production with COVID, it does in fact lead to a lot of adverse effects, as we've probably all noticed. But that's why it's called the transition, not the revolution. The transition is like, you know, this is a 50-year process where we steadily, that, that's where the kind of, this, this concept isn't that useful because it's like, well, you kind of do need to diagnose what the problem is. If you don't see it as capitalism, you can just re-engineer modernity, meaning factories and stuff. And like, oh, if they just use clean energy, it's clean now. Like, well, how's the, how we get the clean energy? Are we killing brown, uh, black and brown people for it? If an imperialism is still intact, that's not really sustainable. Just like the war in Afghanistan. I'll keep, I'll keep turning it back to that sometime. Now, but the point I wanted to make here is here concerns the other two dead end options. The techno fixed crowd argue that their interventions are necessary to avoid ecological Armageddon. The Anophrocene's concept is sometimes recruited to su in support of this eco-modernist claim. But what if Technofix and Armageddon are not options, but conjoined twins? What if our current trajectory has us heading towards both a hubristic Technofix, a la Elon Musk's many companies, and ecological Armageddon? Not explicitly, nor as a state objective, of course, but both together in the name of development and modern living. Would such a troubling path, where nature is us, as some have put it, be reconcilable with at least some version of an human-centric view? I suspect, worryingly, that it would be, and that this is where the rich and powerful in today's world are taking us. You know, Bezos, Musk, etc., Gates. Perhaps there are two options. Technologies of hubris with an Armageddon on the one hand, and a, he says, question mark on the other. Now, I would insert their eco-socialist revolution in there, but he doesn't want to ruffle feathers by actually having a platform, which is something that a lot of these forums and, and think tanks don't like. When are they going to sign on to more than just a open leather in support of a pseudo platform, a pseudo policy. So that's, that's that. So I found that pretty interesting and it's not too long. Now this one is, um, I like, I've read a bit of their content before. This is from center for steady state economy. Another, again, another think tank. Don't worry folks. I'm getting to more down to earth stuff, starting with the heavy stuff. Now, CAS, the Center for Steady State Economy, so I'll just call them CAS, um, they're not anti-capitalist, they don't identify as leftists, but they definitely, they're, they don't really have a politics because they're just kind of this neutral think tank of sorts. But they certainly have a, they have a, stance, a stance against what is termed called like, you know, infinite economic growth. A previous um, article that I probably didn't read on air is that he kind of says, like, okay, economic growth usually has, it has a positive connotation, you know? I mean, you got to grow something before you can have it, right? 
Well, that's what, that's what it feels like. You know, have more jobs, we got to grow the economy, uh, more income. You know, but if you do observe how things work, that's not actually how it works. So he refers to he wants to rename or you know a little rhetorical trick, call it economic bloat, that we have all this growth, but there's nothing being done with it. It's a very simple concept. That well, you need to look at the facts that there really isn't much to invest money in that makes a good return on investment in a natural, honest way. You know, some things get a return on investment because there's government subsidy. Sometimes it gets a return on investment just because. Like, it, it feels like magic, you know, like w when you're in the stock market. It's gambling. And it's like pulling the slot machine and maybe more money will come in. But most times it doesn't. But as far as um, how... You know, profits go up. Firms like BlackRock or, or take Bezos, for example. He keeps accumulating more and more billions. And you kind of have to ask, isn't there anywhere he could reinvest these many billions of his into either new companies, make more new jobs that aren't just Amazon, not just shipping things around, but actually creating things or some whatever. And the reason is he doesn't have to or big firms, Wall Street, there's really nothing to invest in safely. You can invest in all kinds of things. But will there be a return on investment? Will it grow in the future? Will it actually make not only its money back, but of course more money than you put in? And the return on investment, the rate of profit, as it were, has been steadily decreasing decade to decade. So once it reaches zero, that's kind of maybe the tipping point where probability truly means nothing. But the effect that we're seeing now is that we have all this bloat. We have all this money, this value being made, extracted, but it's not going back into the economy. It's not going to us workers. It's not even going to other rich people most of the time. It's just sitting around. This is There's two issues here. There's the currency half of the issue, that the currency should degrade. Like you can have it sit in your bank account because the value of your dollar isn't going down very fast, if at all. And this is because interest rates are always kept slightly above zero, but almost zero. This means money doesn't increase when you have it in your bank account, but it also means that you don't lose any value. There's no sense in spending your money if it doesn't hurt you to have it sitting in your bank account, no matter if it's $100 billion or a $1 trillion. You can think of it in terms of hundreds of dollars. I think of it in terms of thousands. So this is an article by uh, Gunnar Wigring. If it's profitable, is it really sustainable? So I like this one because these guys usually don't interrogate capitalism or capitalist values or the way capitalism works. Uh, that depends on profit, that it's all about accumulating profit. Profit is usually synonymous with surplus, but surplus is something that usually you put back in. You know, you can invest your surplus, you can hold it for a rainy day, but eventually it's like, if you keep extracting more than you need, that's not really green, it's not sustainable, it's not something you can keep doing beyond a certain point. You know, you keep, keep cutting down the forest, eventually you run out of forest. Okay, so I'm starting to read. That an economic activity has to be profitable is considered a truism. Something taken for granted and not reflected upon. Well, at least not by non-leftists. But what if the opposite is the case? 
When I first took up a small-scale organic farming in the 70s, I spent 1970s, I spent a lot of energy on developing new methods and machinery to increase my productive efficiency. The early organic advocates went a long way to assure growers, farmers, and businesses and politicians that organic farming could be profitable, even within the prevailing economic system, even more so if externalities like enhanced soil quality would be factored into the price, which is not the case. I see a similar discourse surrounding regenerative agriculture, permaculture, market gardening, and artisanal bakeries. But perhaps this assurance of profitability has been misguided all along. What if profit isn't desirable? There is an ethical perspective on profit that questions if it is fair that capital owners get rich, richer while workers don't. That question is justified and could be the subject of another essay. But fairness is outside of the scope of this article. My focus instead is on what implications profit has for the economy and the ever-growing use of resources. So I like this essay because usually, on the leftist, we're usually coming at things as a moral issue, the fairness of exploitation, of oppression. We have to rely on this, you know, kind of empathy and solidarity of, of humanity, which we should have to uh, various extents, that the owner, employee, the slave master, the, the stockholder, renter relationship is unfair. We can rely on that, but we shouldn't have to, of course. We can make an economic argument, or we can make, which is what he's going to do, which is really cool, because it is something you can observe in, you know, the, the fair of the business, let's say a co-op, they have a really hard time gaining profits, and uh, competing in the economy. As my little opener kind of states from a clip from a third, uh, 1950s movie, that it's impossible to compete with chain stores and large monopolies if you're the little guy, if you're doing things fairly, if you're, doing, if you're minimizing your exploitation, your oppression, or your pollution. So here is profit in the sustainability narrative. In the world of business, an enterprise is considered viable only if it is profitable. The prevailing sustainability discourse tells us that there is no contradiction between these two things, profitability or any kind of progress, social or otherwise. I'm an anti-capitalist or a socialist because I recognize that uh, there is a, a very heavy contradiction. It's every step of the way. It's, it's everywhere. I'm like, how do you not see that there is a serious disconnect, serious contradiction? You know, I, I don't laugh at it. Like, I can laugh, I mean, as a teenager, I would laugh at the contradictions, you know, daily show jokes. But eventually, you get tired of satirizing how broken things are, how they, much they don't make sense, and you just want to make sense of it. Then, boom. You're, political, you're a political radical before you know it. Environmental politics is full of concepts like the triple bottom line and people, planet, profit. But by and large, this is misleading. Profitability is incompatible with sustainability. And that's why the Green Party is uh, people, planet, uh, peace before profit. Before profit, right? Okay, so that's the old motto. Maybe we should retool it and just say, like, profit, what? No, that's not part of any of it. Profit de uh, derives from a surplus created by economic activities. A surplus after the costs, including capital costs, have been paid. 
Profit can be generated through trade, lending, patents, and other forms of royalties or renting, or production of goods and services, just basically everything. Some profits created by trade or rents are essentially about the redistribution of wealth. If I buy cheaply and sell dear, I can make a profit, but I have not created any additional value for the economy. This is why merchants were usually low on the social hierarchy in most societies. My supplier and the buyer simply paid me to facilitate their exchange. Similarly, lending by banks redistributes capital from the borrower to the bank, which in turn shares some of the capital with those that deposited their capital in bank accounts, it's assumed. My focus here, rather, is on the kind of profit generated in production. You know, we can kind of understand, like, the factory as microcosm. Profit is, let's say it's a pizza shop. Profit is not the same as making ends meet. It is quite apparent that you can't run a business that is constantly losing money. Profit is also not about being able to maintain buildings and replace machinery that's worn out. Profit is about surplus, which will be invested in new enterprises and consequently to generate new profits. Profit can, of course, thus it's, it's an infinite growth curve, you see. You, but it's like, what's the end goal? If there isn't an end goal, maybe a second look of like, why are we doing this again? Cute little video by Thought Slime that I liked about clicker games or games that just kind of, the numbers just go up. What are they going up for? Who knows? But when they go up, you get a hit of dopamine. And that's what it's for. Hits of dopamine. Makes you feel good. Profit can, of course, be used to increase consumption. One, uh, but one person's increase of consumption means another person's increase of production. If that other production is also profit-driven, it will lead to the same result. We can't shun profit altogether. Okay, pyramids, war, and investment, or simply less work. We can't shun profit altogether. An economic surplus has been a precondition of all kinds of any material progress. Though previous increases in farming productivity, our ancestors were able to invest more work in opening up new fields, irrigation, developing other industry. Meanwhile, surpluses in societies were historically often directed into purposes uh, of other production, like pyramids, cathedrals, festivals, parties, art. Now, unless there is no hint of capitalism, some of the economic surplus in modern economies will take the form of some of profit. This is why, you know, in classic Marxism, you kind of need to go through a capitalist, you know, infinite profit-making stage to industrialize. So you kind of you need that, you know, greed is good kind of stuff. But then you need to strictly, like, cut it off. Like, hit, hit an end goal, hit a goal of productivity which is kind of what China has done. They've hit their kind of industrialization goal, and now it's like, okay, we're going to rein in the businesses now. Uh, we don't really need this uh, infinite profit-making stuff anymore. I'm going to uh, cut off the height of skyscrapers because <laughs> we, you know, we just don't need that value-making anymore. We've, got, we've made enough value. Now it's about using it. It's interesting. That, that's a you know, positive spin. When are we going to say, okay, Amazon's big enough? Or not just one company, but the entire economy. But you look at the depredation in various communities, and you think, like, well, look at how much want and how much growth is needed. You know, towns that have, have no economy whatsoever. Obviously, we still need to grow to fill these gaps, right? 
No, the gaps are because of the growth. Or rather, growth does not actually fix those problems. It doesn't fix the fact that money has been shifted out of certain areas and into others. So the most tragic, tragic? Yeah, tragic option is to destroy accumulated surplus capital in act of war. This is kind of like a what's war for. Yet there is a far more peaceful alternative to, if production is more efficient and productivity increases, could simply result in less work instead of an economic surplus, even though that's never been the case. But it's kind of the, it's why you have a cutoff to say, okay, instead of reinvesting in more productivity, we use that surplus to work less. The problem we face in the capitalist market economy, I'm glad he uses those three words together, um, as like, this is what we have, okay? It's not corporatism. Now, a primary reason for its success as well is that under the twin masters of profit and competition, increased productivity must be invested in ever-increasing production, right? You can't invest in your workers. You can't invest in cleaning, cleaning your mess up. Now, because of competition, neither multinational firms nor little family farms have the option to turn increased productivity and profit into other cultural expressions or less work. Profit, then, is intrinsically linked to economic growth or bloat. There can be no economic growth without profit, and there can be no profit without the other. This mirrors the finding that it takes research and development to maintain profits, yet it takes profits to maintain R&D. At first, it seems like a catch-22, but the catalyst for this ongoing cycle of R&D and profit-making turns out to be the economies of scale. In other words, economic growth based on a pre-existing level of tech is a prerequisite for progress. This prerequisite eliminates any technological prospects for reconciling growth and environmental protection. So now a paragraph about, you know, something that I could talk about, you know, I've covered many, many times. You can't be capitalism on its own turf. Because profit is connected to economic growth, and economic growth is intrinsically linked to ever-increasing demands on natural resources, the business sector cannot become sustainable through the process of sustainable business or and outcompete others in a market. Take, for example, the experiences of the cooperative movement. Many cooperatives, to avoid going out of business, have been forced to emulate the model of limited companies rather than changing the prevailing business model. Mm, that hurts. While it may be possible for profiting firms to exist in a steady state economy, oh yeah, yeah, I wanted to point out that like, you know, their way of kind of handling this is then, you know, federally or globally regulating businesses, right? I mean, it's kind of how you, it's kind of like, yeah, you don't have any social progress through market economy, right? The only thing to do is regulate and kind of create a law so that every business has to do X. That way, one cannot outcompete out the other by being more cruel or or one gets outcompeted by being less cruel, uh, less exploitative, less oppressive, et cetera, et cetera. So like, you know, big regulations, state regulations, environmental regulations, these things have kind of done an okay job so far, but there really have just been band-aids for certain levels of environmental protection, like rivers and forests, but not really the planet itself, uh, the climate as a, an ecosystem. While it may be possible for profiting firms to exist in the state-of-state economy, it certainly couldn't be the norm 
Furthermore, at any given time, the profiting of some firms would have to be countervailed by the demise of others. Instead of pursuing sustainable business models dependent on profits, we need to establish alternative markets and networks where consumers and producers are motivated by social benefits. The choice of what to do with surplus, then, is determined according to needs, values, and priorities of those involved. Such networks should not be forced to compete with capitalist firms, but gradually replace profit-laced capitalist ones. Which kind of comes down to dual power strategy. Co-ops don't really qualify as dual power because co-ops are working with market markets, capitalist markets. And so they're kind of working against the tide. And we can't, well, I don't know. It's, it's kind of, a, I'm not convinced that you can build enough co-ops and have a large enough co-op economy that it outcompetes or because it really, it cannot outcompete other firms in a capitalist mode. You know, Amazon and the monopolies and the megacorps will just be bigger. They'll be there. They'll still be there. Co-ops, I do not believe, can assail them. You kind of have to not play that game. I'm kind of a game, I'm a game denier. So to, to, to create, to build non, not capitalism, you know, to have markets, it's still talking of markets, but have socialist markets. But how do you do this I mean, there's there's all the different tools and co-ops and building co-ops like banking co-ops and all these kind of all the tools that other capitalist markets have, but they're socially minded. So I guess it's kind of doing that. So maybe 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 I retract. All these types of co-ops are part of dual power strategy, but they kind of need to be actively doing it. Right, not just oh, we're a food co-op, and we, but we we need to have profits if we're going to stay open. Why? Because we got a loan from a capitalist bank. Well, there aren't enough so there aren't like socialist banks out there. Uh, that's kind of why a state bank is a positive step because then you know you have a lender that isn't Wall Street, and so on. So obviously, public policy will play a major role in paving the way for such models, while simultaneously reining in the worst excesses of capitalism. So it's kind of a reformist. Point of view there. Fine, fine. Redistribution of wealth. So, okay, you know, Bernie Sanders platform. Reducing work, reduced working hours, environmental and social regulations already play important roles in this respect, while public services keep some of our basic needs outside of the logic of the market. You know, social housing and nationalizing things. Nationalizing the basics. Legislation such as the Full and Sustainable Employment Act can acknowledge limits to growth and define sustainable, truly sustainable, ways to organize our economic activities. So this is the kind of thing where, like, the problem can be me and, like, this guy can have the same outlook on what the problem is, but how far are we willing to go? And why do we believe that I, like, why do I believe that we kind of need revolution or eco-socialist revolution to kind of do this. Maybe because we live in capitalist markets and it's a capitalist government that we have. We have to overthrow it. One way or the other. Bernie Sanders framed his primary runs as being a political revolution. Sorry, no. But even if it was, I mean, even if it was, take it for granted, it failed miserably. But I wouldn't argue it would have been. Political revolution means a 
a fully built party gaining in the polls and splitting the vote three ways, like the Republicans did. That shook up how politics worked in America for the next 50 years in American history, between the Civil War and but the progressive era. It changed what the two parties were, pretty much. So to have a you know third party that becomes the new second party would probably replace the Democrats. And then and yeah, and then all the corporate or conservative Dems, they'll join the Republicans like they should have done. Or that they already do, but name only. Where they're registered as a Dem, but they're basically Republicans. So okay, yeah, so I'm done with that one. Now on to I'll do one speaking of Bezos and monopolies, um next from the Washington Post. Bezos newspaper. Bezos owned. Newspaper of record. But otherwise, they have covered this story. Which is, Maine becomes first state to shift costs of recycling from taxpayers to companies. Now, this is a nice, this is a good story. Um, sort of like, okay, this is positive reform. I don't love it, because it's still about like making recycling work when it really isn't workable. But it is also a shift towards so, uh, written by Francis Stead Sellers. Maine became the first state in the nation to require companies that create consumer packaging to pay for the cost of recycling it when Governor Janet Mills signed a bill Tuesday establishing an Extended Producer Responsibility Program, or EPR. So, the legislation for EPR, for packaging, will charge large packaging producers for collecting and recycling cardboard boxes, plastic containers, and other packaging materials, as well as for disposing of non-recyclable packaging. The income generated will be used to support recycling efforts in local communities that have long relied on taxpayers. Great. Love it. This is the kind of thing where, like if I mention, our trash problems have to be taken upstream to the producers of it. We have to, very least, charge them for making the trash that then the public has to dispose of. Think about it. Waste pickup, dumps, incineration, whatever we do with garbage, and recycling as well, is not economically sustainable. It doesn't break even. has to be subsidized. Again, these are all costs that the private sector puts on all of us, right? Uh, otherwise, I mean, even, even if we're all dumping our garbage and there's no garbage collection, the state does nothing about trash problems, but of course it was forced to because the alternative was so much worse. So let's take that as a given. The public has to pick up the costs of the pollution made by the private sector. Another type of subsidy. Let's. This is a form of ending that subsidy by charging them, something that we get charged for by practice. I want to go into what this story will not do, why is Maine passing this? Is the recycling pressure so great? You know, the great, you know, well, it definitely is. Maine has more uh, than most states ranked choice voting. So the Greens have been a little more present in elections like the Senate race and the governor's race. And that, I'm going to throw in, that that affects things. 
Maine does a lot of progressive slash environmentally. They're leading on this because of that reason. It's conjecture on my part. This new law assures every Maine community that help with recycling and lowering the property tax burden is on the way. Everyone loves that. Sarah Nichols, director of the Sustainable Maine Program at the National Resources Council of Maine, presented, no, predicted, that many other states will soon follow suit. Across the country, 10 states, including New York, California, have considered similar legislation. Consider just means it's stuck in committee, I assume. In Oregon, a bill establishing EPR for packaging awaits the signature of Democratic Governor Kate Brown. But we were the first domino to fall, says Nichols. EPR for packaging has been put into practice through Europe and in several Canadian provinces, including Maine neighbor Quebec. Many U.S. states already have EPR programs for goods that are hard to dispose of, such as batteries, mattresses, and medicines. Maine has developed a reputation for leading the way for environmental legislation since passing one of the first bottle bills in the 70s. Almost 20 years ago, the state passed the first laws requiring manufacturers to pay for recycling electronics, like computers and television. And in 2019, Maine's legislature put a ban on foam food containers, which will soon go into effect. Now, I thought foam containers were banned nationwide a long time ago, like in my childhood. But maybe that was just a recognition of the problem. The new packaging legislation was, oh wait, no, 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 it was like foam packaging in fast food, and it was just in fast food, but obviously there's foam containers for eggs and all kinds of stuff in the grocery store. So the new packaging legislation was, of course, opposed by some business groups, not all of them, Uh, but the opponents were the main grocers and food producers that were concerned that it would affect the supply chain and increase the cost of groceries. The law includes exemptions for small business and nonprofits, as it must, of course. Nichols, who said estimates from the state's Department of Environmental Protection show that taxpayers shell out at least $16 million annually to recycle or dispose of packaging, said she hopes companies will soon be required to shoulder the burden of other environmental challenges. It's also a majority of our trash. When I think about the trash I make, like the actual bag trash, I make very, very little of it. This is because most of the packaging I use or accept that I buy is, I mean, again, recycling is not great. In fact, it's really terrible. But when I sort everything that's you know has the recyclable symbol on it, it's a lot of volume. And my bags of trash, like I, it takes me a month to fill them. Because it's, I'm only throwing in like the films, the plastic films, or the or the packaging from noodles or something like stuff that's really thin, light, can't be recycled. Everything else that's thicker, that takes a volume, anything cardboard, uh, paper boxes, and whatever. It's all it can all be crunched down and and thrown into the egg carton. Uh, fossil fuel companies need to take responsibility. No duh, says Nichols. Not just tell people to drive electric cars and turn off the lights. My hero. Recycling programs have been hit by China's 2018 decision to ban U.S. materials. And this is where all of our recycling was going. But not anymore. Basically, China, like I said, they don't need to grow anymore. They don't need to accept our waste uh, for for their economy. So they said, no, we don't need to import anymore. We don't have to grow exponentially. 
And that just kills, kills our recycling industry. By the abrupt closure of the state-of-the-art recycling plant. Oh, okay, sorry. The one main community had to close the state-of-the-art recycling plant. Michael Gilmartin, who helped lead an effort to establish a recycling center in coastal Trenton, only to see it close under financial pressure a couple of years ago, was optimistic that the new law could bring it back. It's wonderful news, Gilmartin said, as he is making plans to discuss re- reopening it with you know local people. Along the causeway on Mount Desert Island, Mark Worcester, owner of the transfer station that takes Trenton's trash, said he will be ready when recycling starts up again. We have all the machinery and signs, Worcester said. I don't know what the signs refer to, though. He would, though. Or anyone who's in the recycling biz. So in the last five minutes of the hour, I'll share with you a post from local activist, friend of mine, Grace. And this is her kind of pointing out the problems with the U.S. climate movement, kind of blackpilling, but of course it's meant to be a call to action. And get your act together. So I'll just read it. It turns out that our tiny little local climate group is having discussions about how activists need to be supportive of one another and yada yada. So I've decided to place my general comments here. Number one, we live in a society in the U.S. industrial northeast, which, if looked at historically, is the biggest climate offender in the world, which is partly responsible for our comparative privilege. Point two, we live in one of the most privileged societies on earth both economically and with respect to civil liberties. Not health care, though. Number three, the world has recognized climate change as the single biggest threat to life on Earth, ever. By the world, meaning institutions, maybe. Number four, the U.S. climate movement is fairly small, fractious, timid, and ego-ridden. We do not have a large-scale direct actions of, let's say, Germany, where activists occupied a coal mine for years, We are not as brave as the indigenous Australian canoe navy, which disrupts coal transport from Australia. Point five, U.S. climate movement is lazy, does not make alliances with diverse communities with common interest. Puerto Rican, Caribbean, Latino, Asian activists remain largely unaware of each other. Point six, U.S. climate movement is ego-driven. Groups don't form equal and respective coalitions because of jockeying for leadership positions. This needs to stop. Point seven, the U.S. climate movement is classist. Well, we could write a book about this one. I'll just leave it at that. The U.S. climate movement refuses to learn the lessons of other movements in terms of how to organize, to structure itself, process its decision-making. They are sloppy on all of these fronts, and people's voices are often squashed, which leads to later problems. Point nine, the U.S. climate movement behaves in various infantile ways, demands emotional support rather than effective action. So finally, the conclusion then is U.S. climate movement is ineffective. So get it together. We need more people. We need more good organizing, more commitment, less salary positions, more airtime, more billboards, more direct action. So don't quit. Get better. Sort of a rant, rant post, but I liked it. So I'll just wrap up that section of the show. And now I'll just play this. On the other side of the hour.
Okay, welcome back to the second hour of the Three Left Show. Learning the next um, article, welcome back to the Three Left Show, Leftist Reading Hour, Ecological Topics. Um, now the more, well actually, no, it's actually, again, I'm going to start the hour with heavy stuff, and then go with more fluffy stuff as we go. There were the farm, they're farm stories, folks, it's farm stories. They're basically tw- twins, bad, like they're, it's bad news, I'm going like, to start with the bad news. But it's really more of a, like, yeah, our system, our food system sucks. It's it's unsustainable. I mean, it's feeding us for now. but Or it's feeding us at the expense of so-called freedom and yeoman farmer and things that make America great. But, of course, how do you define what's great? Profit-making? Economic growth? Obviously not. That's not what pe- most people are thinking of. It's I hope not. So the first is about farm bankruptcy small farm bankruptcy, or any kind of farm bankruptcy. This is from Reuters, filed by P.J. Huffstrutter. Ooh, that's a fun read. And it literally says it's a three-minute read. Let's see how long it takes me to read this. Writing out of Chicago. U.S. farm bankruptcy rates jumped 20% in 2019 to an eight-year high. As financial woes in the U.S. agriculture economy continued, this continued in spite of massive federal bailout funding, According to federal court data, this story is filed. Was it filed in 2019? It's filed uh, January of last year, still before the pandemic started. Um, this is even before then. But let's say this is things like this. They're long-term trends. So whether it's from a year ago or five years ago, it's the same story, but it's more just how how is it progressing? Similar to similar to Afghanistan. You check in with what's happening in Afghanistan every year or every six months, and you basically know what's happening. You know that this was going to happen. I think it's surprising how fast. Uh, like, I think it was assumed a month or so, not two weeks, that the Taliban would rush in. But, I mean, it's not so much the rushing in as much as, like, they're there. It's their country. Anyway. So, according to data released this week by U.S. courts, family farmers filed 595 Chapter 12 bankruptcies in 2019. This is up from about 500 a year earlier. The data also shows that such filings, fairly known as family farmer bankruptcies, have steadily increased every year for the past five. Farmers across the nation also have retired or sold their farms because of the financial strains, changing the face of Midwestern towns and concentrating the business in fewer hands. I just had a farmer contact me last week telling me he can't get financing for his inputs this year and he doesn't know what to do. This is Covey, a bankruptcy attorney based in Peoria, Illinois. This is a relevant uh, story for Illinois because as soon as you get out of Chicago, it's all corn farms. Or at least as far from my, when I was on the train, that's all I saw. <laughs> See the country by train, folks. Yeah. How's that American dream going for you? The increase in cases has been somewhat expected. Bankruptcy experts and agriculture economists said as family, as farmers face trade battles, ever-mounting farm debt, prolonged low commodity prices, volatile weather patterns, and a fatal pig disease that has decimated China's herd. Now, I'm not sure how the mass die-off of Chinese pigs affects, well, I guess it affects the price, but then to, it would raise, wouldn't it raise the price? That farmers in America could sell them. That's the thing. Like, if, if you if you have better uh, knowledge about uh, agricultural markets, 
this would be more useful. But I don't. So, like, okay, I just have to take it that that is a bad for American local far uh, small farmers. I wanted to point out and repeat that the issue here is not that there isn't financing. It's that it's not available. They're not lending like the banks aren't lending. Like they could keep going if they got their inputs every year. But they can't guarantee profitability. They can't guarantee infinite growth of their, you know, an infinite surplus or more of a surplus every year. They could at least break even and grow food. But no, banks don't want that. So they have to go bankrupt. They're saving up to go bankrupt. That's a folk song I have. Even billions of dollars spent over the past two years in government agricultural assistance does not stem the bleeding. Nearly one-third of projected U.S. net farm income in 2019 came from a government aid and taxpayer subsidy commodity insurance payments, meaning that if you lose a crop, government will uh, rebate you for the cost so you don't, that, so you could farm again next year. Something that's probably a New Deal program. The court data indicates those supports did help prevent a more serious economic fallout, to John Newton, chief economist for the American Farm Bureau Federation. Some of the biggest bankruptcy rates increases have been seen in regions such as apple growers in the Pacific Northwest that did not receive much or of any of the latest round of trade aid from the Trump administration, you know, when it was still there. The bankruptcy data signals that things have not turned around, said John Newton, chief economist for the American we still have supply and demand uncertainty, and if we see prolonged low prices, I wouldn't expect this trend to slow down. And that's the end of that. So just a little tidbit of news. Oh, it still hasn't loaded. But it's basically a story from you, Amherst, about how Corn Belt farmland has been losing a lot of its topsoil. Basically, again, these farmers have to push how much they can grow year in, year out. They're not able to do things in a sustainable, healthy way for the soil. You know, but of course, when, when, a, when a people lose its soil, they lose everything. Okay, to avoid dead air. Um, so this is from uh, Women You Should Know. It's just women. It's women. The women. The women with a Y. I don't know. It's women you should know. So, but it's also an ecology story. But it's about a leader in ecology. It takes a forest to grow a tree, the revolutionary forest ecology of Suzanne Simard. Here's a woman you should know, or just general person you should know. The name Suzanne Simard, uh, filed by Dale Dabrowski, uh, filed uh, May of this year. Four short decades ago, the prevailing wisdom among forestry officials was the free-to-grow model, by which when a forest was clear-cut for lumber, the earth was to be cleared with as much vegetation as possible to make room for planting monocultures of the most profitable trees, profitable trees, neatly spaced in symmetrical grids, allowing other shrubs and trees to exist next to your cached seedlings. Everybody knew and instinctively felt uh, that allowing these to grow would rob resources from those seedlings and doom them to an early demise. Just the trees. The problem was the ideal free-to-grow forests of government theory were proving to be anything but robust. Stricken by disease, heat shock, and more susceptible to short-term water shortage, these designed forests were not prospering as they should have. But as there was too much bureaucratic inertia at the, that point, 
behind this concept, it seemed likely that it would continue as a central dogma for reforesting for decades to come. It replaced vibrant, diverse forest life with acres of barren, herbicide-soaked soil from which one variety of trees would struggle to strain its way skyward. So just imagine, we need to regrow this forest. I know, let's spray herbicide along, um, along the rows so that only the trees we want to cut down later will grow. It's kind of taking a competition kind of mindset where, well, we don't want any other plants to compete with the trees, so we should make sure nothing else grows. Sort of like cropping, where, yeah, we only want this to grow, so we should pull out all the weeds and not grow anything else with it. But that is not actually how it works. Uh, ecology, actually, diversity is strength. Now, that doesn't mean you should, you know, weeds have to grow or should grow with, um, we, def we define them as weeds, you know, things you can't eat. But um, you should de-weed, but we wouldn't have to if you just grew really dense gardens food foresting so um and by the way if you want to know more about this would you like to know more about permaculture and the like um i have been i'm not going to do it every week but a twitch streamer that i'm collaborating with uh, bread theory is the channel's name he's been doing on the regular permaculture streams where he just simply reacts to what's it um basically a youtube course of videos from a Pacific Coast uh, school, a permaculture design course, uh, in the form of YouTube videos. And so I joined him Sunday uh, with that and gave him any anecdotes. And, you know, we just, we're a pair. We both have a, he has a design background. I have an architecture background. So we all have kind of our various ways of reacting to things uh, professionally and, of course, as leftists. He sees it as important, and I, I totally agree, which is why I'm doing it with him, to talk about permaculture and ecology. Because um, without these things, we can apply these, this thinking to our activism. You know, kind of pointed out by Grace about the American climate movement is that it's so ineffective compared to any other country because we're all competing with each other. We're competing for space inside of groups. Groups compete with other groups about whether what their agenda should be or what the target should be, what the goals are, just doesn't do as well. So in 1980, a woman, the one being covered here, employed by the foresting industry took a look at the yellowed and dying saplings growing from their professionally cleared patches of earth, and as all good scientists do, asked herself the great why, which would determine the course of all her coming days. Why, removed from all competition of resources, did these trees appear to be doing worse than those left to grow among all manner of competitors in a wild forest? Her name was Suzanne Samard, and in the decades to come, her experiments would rewrite all the central dogmas of forest management, though at an often cruel personal cost. She grew up the descendant of a long line of hard-living Canadian frontiersmen who had carved their livings from the timber of the wilderness. Skip her personal bio, but I guess this is... This is the, it's more about her. The wilderness-loving child grew up to do what many forest-attuned Canadian youth did. They got the first job working for the local timber industry, plotting out clear-cut sites and evaluating prescriptions on how cleared fields ought to be replanted. The goal was to plant as much of the fastest-growing, most profitable trees there were to eliminate anything else that competed with those cash trees. 
kind of reminds me of this little quip about profit making of capitalist markets and that a forest is only valuable after it's been cut down. Similar to kind of like, you know, a person is only valuable to an employer after their soul has been crushed. Kind of thing. You have to destroy to make profit from something. Mindset. Take on that. Simard suspected, however, that this policy was not only ecologically unsound, destroying biodiversity in exchange for one particularly desirable species, meaning monoculture, mono one, leaving the timber industry, leaving it, she began working for the Ministry of Forests, which she had opportunities to test her theories about how fir saplings interact and perhaps even cooperate with neighboring shrubs that ultimately improve their long-term health. Her investigations concentrated on the potential role of fungal networks in acting as intermediaries between fir saplings and more established plants. I've covered this topic before, but now kind of what this teases out is the history of the concept, as in like who's the source of it as a person of interest. One of the primary problems of the fur free-to-grow approach was that they destroyed these systems and the plants that they sprung from, leaving new seedlings with nothing to connect to in the soil and nothing to protect them from infection. Basically, the, the fungal networks. Mushrooms are memes, and memes are mushroom. But mushrooms are also a, I, I love this, it's a wood-wide web. Like the mushrooms spring out in all of these networks, like a big brain like the internet. Wood-wide web. Because it basically connects all the things in the forest together. The forest is, in fact, well, it's not one organism, but it, it's all connected together into one entity. That's why it's like the ecosystem, a ecosystem. Through a series of rigorously planned and executed experiments, Simar discovered that not only do saplings draw nutrients from fungal webs in the soil that they are directly connected to, but the trees of different types can shuttle resources back and forth. Now, I covered this story exactly. Was it hers or was it someone else? Which is strange because I was reading it like it was something recent, and this is talking about like it's something from past. Uh, I suppose it's not saying when, but anyway, if you haven't heard that episode before, because it probably was a year ago, uh, here's a refresher. Birch, for example, which logging companies considered a natural enemy of pine, turned out to play a much more complicated role than anticipated, with a de delicious tree and the conifer shuttling carbon back and forth to each other as each hit its preferred season for um, photosynthetic activity, solar power, as you call it. Even those pine saplings growing in the direct shade of birch received enough benefit from the sugars flowing from the faster-growing trees, not to speak of the resistance to disease-causing bacteria conveyed by the birch's roots, to offset the diminished access to light to allow the tree to grow. So basically it grew because of the birch, not in spite of it. Similar results were showing, to put it mildly, that the reigning orthodoxies of forest practice were dangerously unsophisticated in their approach to the interdependencies of forest life, and they won a few friends in the field. Threatened by this newcomer who dared question the wisdom of clear-cut techniques, followed by herbicide-soaked bare soil grid planning, they were actively hostile to her ideas, and eventually Simard was informed that her job was not secure, and that she would do well to find other means of employment. Sounds like a soft firing. Talks about her personal life. Married with a young daughter and without steady income in the household, tough decisions had to be made. While her husband insisted that they could live a simple life in the woods without the need for much money, Simard did not want to abandon the research, which she was so sure was the key to a saner 
North American forestry policy and wanted to set instead take a position at the university. Her husband did not want to move to the city and take up a Mr. Mom role in a household. Oh, sorry. Sometime after, get over yourself. Sometime after the two-year trial period, Simmer's husband uh, returned with the children to the comparative wilderness of Nelson. Nine-hour drive. Can is big, folks. Uh, let's see. So it, it was, in the end, a crushing load to bear, and her marriage would eventually end. All the while, however, her professional life was uncovering ever more startling layers of forced complexity. Working with her graduate students and a growing cohort of collaborators, Simard established that the forest's oldest trees, which she termed mother trees, are bound in a tight relation to the seedlings connecting to the web, the fungal web, and are able to recognize which trees in that web are related to them and which are not, and are able to preferentially send more resources to those who are their kin. So let that, so let it sink in that the largest, you know, tallest mother tree um, or the tree that sends out its saplings that it connects via the fungal web and it supports them. Okay, continuing on. Simard and her team found that when elder tree is stressed and approaching death, it stores, it shoves its stored of resources out into the network, giving its last drops of nutrients and energy, nutrients and energy to its offspring to allow them to better survive and also conveying information to those offspring about potential dangers. Not sure how that's represented, though. Uh, put together her four decades of research, part of which were carried out while suffering from uh, breast cancer. They represent a grand recognition that just beneath the soil, trees utilize an elaborate communication system, which allows them to shuttle water, carbon, nitrogen, and other stuff, plants crave, to where it's needed to recognize genetically related individuals, to warn others of threats, to pull resources and protect against infection. Little wonder, then, that the sapling Singard found in the 1980s shoved into bare earth for all the access to sun and water they enjoyed found survival difficult. To indulge, indulge in some shameless humanizing, it would be akin to taking an orphan child and sticking them without supervision in a mansion stocked with nothing but food and she says candy, and expecting them to thrive. It takes a forest, a living, complex biome, to grow a tree. Until we say, take Singer's evidence seriously to adapt our forestry policies, accordingly, we shall continue to make those mistakes. In a nearly half century since Singard Samard, oh, Samard began her studies, a new generation of forestry officials has risen, free from these uh, past dogmas, and the good news is that they are starting to heed the data, Simard has dedicated her life to crewing and are writing policies on how forests are to be logged, replanted, that take into account her discoveries. The diverse microcausal connection. The wood wide web. Meanwhile, uh, she's done TED Talks. She's founded Mother Tree Project. It's also important in tree sitting activism to, um, you know, you pick the tallest tree and you save that one from the, uh, from the chainsaws. That way, if the rest get cut down, any replacement trees uh, will actually get the help of having old-growth forest there, or at least the, the foundation of it. Now, she has survived professional scorn and prejudice. Um, this is just the final wrap-up. Deep personal loss and the vicious machinations of cancer, and stand today directing our attention to the forest that will determine so much of our global future to deserve to observe and learn, and ultimately, if we are wise, to act. So that's the story of Suzanne Simard.
Women You Should Know. But a review and reintroduction, if uh, if you will, or, or new, uh, of the ideas of ecology, interconnectedness of things. And just as this whole, like, it takes a neighborhood, it takes a family, it takes a community to raise a child, it takes a village, sorry, it's the word village, it takes a forest to grow a tree. These are the same. It's all life. It's all nature. Okay. These two stories probably will not fill the rest of the hour. We'll see. Okay. Um, now some less far, more some micro stories. Micro stories. So one is an example of those like, okay, can we do modern things but not gross and harming the environment? Yeah. So... So I guess this is a Australian place or something. Yeah, to ABC meaning Australian Broadcast Company. From Sydney, uh, also a radio station, filed by Harriet Tamman. It's pool to pond as homeowners ditch salt and chlorine for urban wildlife water holes. So kind of ecological swimming hole, something to replace swimming pools with, something you can dig in a backyard. And uh, the effects are like, Basically, obviously, there are neighbors and neighborhoods that consider wildlife to be a nuisance and something they don't want. But I think living with eco in an ecosystem is beneficial and kind of forces you to live within nature. For example, let's say I don't want wildlife around. It makes noise. Like, well, when does it make noise? During the day? Well, not usually at night. Why don't you sleep at night and do stuff during the day and then it won't bother you? That so much of modern life, or at least enough of modern life, encourages us to stay up all night or not uh, rise with the sun and go to bed at 9, 8-ish. You know, I'm doing this show between 8 and... So anyway, with farmers... So this is in Australia where the water resources are much um, more concerning. With farmers across Australia facing dust, dry creeks, and financial ruin in what some are calling the worst drought in living memory, swimming pools are often seen as a luxury. Now some of the close to 3 million Australians currently living in a house with a pool are ditching the chlorine and looking at sustainable options like ponds and natural pools, saving on both resources and effort. When Ian and Carol Stroke set out their set out of their south Toramura home and into their pool area, they were welcomed by a wetland oasis with fish, microbats, frogs, and ducks. The now retired couple are traveling across the country in a, in a motorhome and feared their pool would suffer while they were away until they decided to embrace the algae. One of the people from Kurilagon Council suggested, Why don't you try a pool to pond? And it went from there. Yeah, so then they were. And then it was suggested that they go from pool to pond. So I guess it it got bad because it was still pool. Weird. Okay. So the local council created their pool to pond program in 2007 and believe they were the first in the country to officially encourage residents to make this transition. Since then, the council has converted. So it's not just a personal choice. It's something that's organized. That's cool. Since then, the council has converted more than 100 swimming pools to wildlife ponds an increase of about 6% a year. You know, fish and plants do their thing. Once the strokes decided to give up the chlorine, the pair stopped looking after it. We didn't really have to do anything. You turn the chlorine off, you turn the pool 
power off, the fish do their thing, and the plants do their thing. In the first two years, the couple said the pond looked a little pathetic until the plants were established. It's like a paradise here. It's a lovely little world. So I'm thinking this isn't about making your own little swimming hole, though I suppose you can still go in it. Um, it's more about turning a pool that costs water and energy into something that's just like you make a little pond out of it, so then you don't have to use those resources. That's not really a swimming hole, is it? But you can make versions of this that are swimming holes, and you just use wetland plants to clean it. Uh, despite the assumption that a pond will encourage mosquitoes, smelly water, and bacteria, the water stays clean thanks to the plants. Impurities are absorbed and harmful bacteria destroyed by water organisms. We've had it tested for pathogens and mosquitoes, neither of which have flourished. And I can attest the water tasted okay. The other day when I fell in and didn't get sick. <laughs> okay, so I guess I'm not swimming in it. Uh, in the northern West Australian town of Broome, a similar transformation has been completed, but with swimming encouraged rather than left to accidents. Okay. Three years ago, ABC Kimberly, Kimberly feature reporter Ben Collins began the conversation of his family's chlorinated salt, salt water pool into a national natural freshwater swimming pool. It felt like a big gamble to put rocks, plants, and fish in our backyard pool, which is an essential part of survival here in the tropics. So the motivation to take the plunge came when the wet season rains diluted the pool's salt and chemicals, turning it green and making it possible for plants and fish to survive in it. <laughs> the pool shop said we needed to spend another $200 to basically fix it. And I thought, why don't we just go freshwater? With swimming in mind, Mr. Collins also modified the existing filtration system, depowering the chlorinator and swapping the sand filter for a bead filter more commonly used in aquaculture. So we run the filter, pool vacuum, and skimmer box pretty much per normal. But the aquaculture filter uses bacteria to help keep the water clean. So, but, you know, swimming with fish is not for everyone. His pool also had a troubled beginning with murky water and struggling plants. It took about a year and a half before the water stayed clear all the time, and the plants really started to uh, do their thing and flourish. Now, he said, uh, he would never go back to a traditional saltwater pool, although he admits it is not for everyone. Now, this is something I've never heard of here in the States, a saltwater pool. But I can get the allure of it. Maybe you don't have to put so much chlorine in it. And it's probably something mosquitoes can't lay their eggs in. My boys love swimming and even snorkeling in the pool, but my daughter prefers more of a resort-style pool and refuses to swim with the fish. So here's the third category for you. The natural pool. Mul um bimbi. That's it. On Australia's east coast, comedian author Mandy Nor Nolan sidestepped the transition process by building an eco-pool in the first place. So an eco-pool, also known as a natural one, does not use any chemicals and stays clean by keeping the water moving. When building their home, Miss Nolan and her husband decided to go with a natural option. They dug a hole and filled it with cement, natural rock, water grasses, and other flowers. When the pool was first put in, it was a mud puddle for quite a long time because of all the disturbance. I thought, oh my, we have spent all this money and we have a giant festering mud pond. But after eight weeks, the pool transformed to sparkling clean water. I woke up one day and it was crystal clear overnight. It's phenomenal. There's pictures of it. Doesn't look that deep, but maybe it's just a perspective. 
It has a waterfall that runs all the time. That's part of the process that keeps it clean, that is constantly moving. Ms. Nolan said the pool costs less than a standard chemical pool. And despite having to run the pump all the time, solar power means it costs less than $5 a week. The family is required to occasionally top off the pool with the water when the water evaporates. But reliance on rainwater tank, again, reliance on a rainwater tank keeps the cost down. It is used all the time in summer, and even when you're not swimming, the rocks are inviting for kids to play around. My daughter Ivy has been playing over the waterfall and blah, blah, blah. And that's it. Just kind of a review of, of ways of doing pools that don't rely on chemicals, which I freaking hate. I mean, I basically don't really do swimming pools because of the because of the chlorine on my skin. Like it got like in middle school, the and this is a case of a pool that's in a basement, so it's already a little feel, feeling mildewy. Um, the water is heated to eighty degrees. So it had so much chlorine in it, I, I would burn needles on my skin burning. Uh, even after showering, it would just dry out my skin so much. Uh, it was painful. It was sort of pain. Pseudo pain. Okay. Now for a local story for you people in the Albany area. But also, this is a kind of a land back story, too. So from the Times Union... Paper of Record, um, Hearst Paper here in Albany, New York, where I'm broadcasting from. Mohicans reclaim a key part of their New York ancestral lands. By Kenneth Crow. So, in East Greenbush, it's across the river from me, Stockbridge Mosi Community Band of the Mohican Indians, yes, there is not the last of them, have regained ownership of a culturally significant 156 acres along the Hudson River that was deeded to a Dutch colonist 386 years ago, meaning this is when the land changed from native to European hands. The Open Space Institute donated the Panskopke Island Nature Preserve to the Mohicans, thus reestablishing the Native American nation's presence in their ancestral homeland. Mohicans are based in Wisconsin after being forced westward by the settlers. Now, this is a significant part of our homeland. To be able to say it's ours again is very cool, said a Heather Bergerl, cultural affairs director for the Stockbridge Muncie community. Penasky Island is named for the Penasking, a Mohican sachem who led the village at the site. His heirs signed a deed to the property, turning it over to Killian van Rensselaer, Dutch diamond merchant and member of the Dutch West India Company, back in 1637. Now, I was listening to, I wouldn't call it a podcast, I guess it's a podcast, it's special content made by some Chapo Trap House guys. And as downstaters do, they were mispronouncing Albany as Albany, or, yeah, Albany being the best version of that. And uh, Rensselaer as like Rensselaer or something. It's something wrong. It's just cringe. As part of the announcement of the land's return, the Mohicans and Open Space Institute issued a story map entitled The Long Journey Home The Return of New York's Pensimki Island to the Stockbridge Muncie Community. Pretty basic 
The return of this island preserve is an acknowledgement of the Stockbridge Bunchy community's historic connection to the property and of this, the bitter history of land dispossession and land policy that not only removed Mohican ancestors from this homeland, but also brutalized and segregated generations of those who originally inhabited our nation, says Kim Elliman, president of Open Space Institute. Mohicans take their name from their word for the Hudson River, the Manchahatuk, which means the river that flows both ways, or the waters that are never still. This is because it flows downriver, and there is a tidal upriver flow. The Mohican Nation thanks Open Space Institute for this exciting opportunity, this is their statement, um, to this important cultural site. Blah, 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 yada, yada. Nice, nice, nice. Mohicans are still active in their ancestral homeland along the Hudson River, east into Massachusetts, protecting culturally important sites, explaining their history and connection to the region. The Mohicans have identified the location through tribal tradition and archaeological investigation as being a village site for thousands of years. Indigenous people took advantage of the rich waters of the Hudson River and prime farmland. So it's like, okay, why is this island important to them? Well, because over time, recent time, Archaeology has found that there was village sites there, and so on. It was um, the third sale of land by Mohegan people to the Dutch. Payment was made in the form of duffels, axes, knives, and wampum. The land was immediately settled and farmed by Dutch tenants, and has been in continuous cultivation ever since. Mohawk, the Mohicans, and the Open Space Institute said in announcing this transfer. To have a place where he the tribal leader, Penskanaki, lived. To have it back in our ownership is very significant. The Ocean Space Institute acquired the island in the early 1990s, so not too long ago, to protect the culturally and environmentally critical lands from development from the nearby port in Rensselaer to the north. The nature preserve is in East Greenbush, Rensselaer and Skodak off Route 9J. And it has hiking trails that are administered by the county. It mentions that the county exec was uses uh, were there. They're they're not nice people, so I'm going to skip that. <laughs> they were they were Republican. Uh, the Peskimiki Island Nature Preserve will continue to man be managed by Rensselaer County and the Rensselaer Land Trust for public access and protection. Bergel said the site will be used for cultural events in the future, now that the Mohicans again own it. So, Open Space Institute, definitely like kind of a uh, 1970s, 80s kind of group that was formed then uh, to buy up or reacquisition land along, say, Hudson River and other, well, basically, you know, open space. Let's keep the open space. Uh, keep it from being developed, create nature preserves, and so on. So, I suppose with finding, doing archaeological work, Finding that it is, in fact, a significant space for the Mohicans, they're thinking, why not just transfer the ownership to them? I found it interesting that, uh, what, what does it say that the county administers? It just, it administers the hiking trails. So, yeah, I mean, management is not the same as owner, ownership. So, if anything, it's like, okay, the owner has the agreement with the county to manage it. So, just, just like any public park. It's a nature preserve, and nature preserves fall into kind of public park kind of uh, entities, I guess. Okay. Farmland story loaded. 
it's not working. So I will I will keep a link in the show notes so you can read it. Probably a short one, mostly about soil loss and how it is. Yeah, it's still getting worse because it's not regenerative, and that's the thing. So it's mentioned before regenerative farming, other types of uh, you know more responsible production. It's just not profitable, but it's the things we need to do. So we need to stop making profitability something we care about. That means, ergo, there's a lot of other things that we're told we need to care about, that the government cares about, that our Wall Street cares about, that we just don't need to care about. We need to say, hell with all that. Hell with you. You're killing us. You're killing the planet. You got to go. If not you, but your position needs to go. What you do needs to go. Not you as a person, of course. But that's why populist right-wingers are, um, or hyper-right-wingers, I mean, what makes them dangerous isn't really their own ideas. It's that they are so easily manipulated into taking the side of Wall Street and powers that be that they say they hate, right? But they're so easily turned to... You know, fighting the true enemy, which are the very people that are attempting to to find solidarity with them. I have a few stories here that kind of go together, but, I mean, they're just from the same source. Don't want to... Yeah, I guess I will, because it does tie into the recycling story. So, from... Wrap up the show. Tree Hugger. I have two other stories from them. They'll go save them for a different show. So, this is... It's not good news. But it's something to, it's what we're working against, that, you know, capitalism really can't be reformed. Uh, profitability just has to be taken out. Markets, fine. If they're socialist markets, socially oriented markets. But what does it mean to be a socially, like a socialist market? How do we build it? How do we make sure it's not being corrupted by the, the market system that's capitalist, that's profit-driven? There always seems to be a little bit of, overlap unless you're just doing it in the woods completely con disconnected from anything else so uh the story is undercover tape how exxon is lobbying to make plastics the norm so this isn't so much about i mean it ties in recycling because it's plastic okay but they are a major and growing contributor to climate change not just the make you know it's more the making of them than the dumping of them but the dumping doesn't help either of course filed by a sammy grover published just this week, in fact. I was just, you know, scoping, scoping for articles um, a few days ago when I found this one. So Treehugger design editor Lloyd Alter has had it up to here with folks claiming that 100 companies are responsible for 71% of carbon emissions. That's, even though that's somewhat very fair. Uh, whether it's the difference between state-owned versus, oh yeah, so, so basically this is a, I don't really have time to go into the ex explanation of it, but a common refrain of lefty po posting is to say, look, don't blame yourself for pollution and climate change. It's not an individual problem. It's a society-wide problem. And at the top of our society are 100 companies that create 71% of the pollution. But this guy doesn't really like that rhetoric. Why? Well, whether it's the difference between state-owned versus privately traded fossil fuel interests, or the importance of differentiating between the different kinds of emissions, the soundbite really does flatten some details that probably shouldn't be glossed over. It also inspires the type of left fatalism, in that individual behavior changes are entirely irrelevant 
to the fight against climate change. Though I would stress, which I, if you haven't been paying attention to this diatribe of mine over the course of this episode or any other ecologically episode I do, it's more that this can't be the only thing we do. That we have to fight climate change, that it cannot be fought only with behavior, individual changes. I mean, isn't that obvious? But of course, I mean, when you're liberal, anything a leftist says has to be taken as some kind of like, well, that's your dogma, and that's the only thing you believe, and you don't believe in anything else. How dare you? Uh, and that's just imbecilic. That said, the reason this claim has gotten so much traction is because it does get to an undeniable truth. The fossil fuel industry has been instrumental in shaping the policy, the discourse, the industrial landscape that ultimately shape the choices of us and even the options they have about which choices to even make. So that's one editor complaining, because he sees it as leftist fatalism, but let's see who's the writer of this. Sammy um, obviously sees why this rhetoric is actually used in the first place. When denial failed, oil companies developed a sophisticated playbook for appearing to promote solutions. As long as those solutions weren't really going to move the needle on emissions, Exxon has predicated support for a carbon tax, for example, on a negligible $40 a ton, plus combining it significant regulatory simplification, a code word for avoiding more impacts, avoiding more actual uh, measures like banning fossil fuel cars. Now the industry has its sights set on plastics as a growth area, and it's developing exactly the same playbook. Faced with growing public concern about plastic pollution, litter, waste, the industry is looking to engage in conversations and positions itself as the problem solver. So that's all bunk. So for the most part, there's a reason why maybe lefties like me are like anti-speech as far as like, look, we're not having a conversation with you. No conversation is productive. You are entirely biased towards a particular outcome, which is damaging or dangerous. So I'll end, I'll end the episode with that. Housekeeping. So, a reminder that word of mouth is the best thing you can do growing the show. A number of like-minded comrades. I would suggest you leave a review of the podcast and share three lefts on your chosen social media platform. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, also Instagram, but not really active on, on any of these things. Not in a true way. I'm not really, I'm not a terminally online poster. But I do see these things when you um, message me. So please do. So if you have any uh, suggestions or topics you want me to cover or any questions for me, please do. Sharing the show, obviously telling people you think would be interested in it. This episode, along with the last 10, are broadcast on most podcasting apps. Make sure that you search for the three, numeral three, left's show without the full title. It does not come up very high on, say, Apple Podcasts. I just did a retest and it's like it's number five when you type in the whole title hate that but at least it comes up in the first place but anyway the full archive along with show notes can be found at three lefts dot news uh, you can also email me which is also uh, three left show at gmail so anyway keep it rad uh, keep practicing put the ideas and ideas you know there's a can you know whether it's a campaign for the kind of recycling law that Maine has here in New York or your state, um, or, any, or if you have a swimming pool, encourage your family members to go natural. Whatever, 
start to starve the companies that just make plastic pool liners and whatever other crap. So anyway, thank you very much for listening to The Three Left Show.